0: I want to welcome you to Arden First. Our mission here is to lead ordinary people into extraordinary life in Christ. We are a place where you can belong, believe, and become. I like to say it like this: We're a place you can belong even before you believe, but once you believe, God will help you to become all that He wants you to become. Amen. We're going to be in Luke's Gospel, chapter nine, as we go verse by verse through Luke's Gospel. I was reading about an airport. How many of you have flown this year? Anybody? Some of you have. So this flight got canceled and delayed, and there was a long line behind the travel agent's desk. And so she was had the assignment, the sole travel agent, to rebook and reschedule all the flights. So as she was doing one by one, a man got out of line and went straight to the front. He grabbed his tickets and slammed it on the travel agent's desk and said, I want the next flight And it has to be first class. And the travel agent paused for a moment and gently responded, Sir, I'd love to help you when it's your turn. As you can see, there's a long queue and you have to wait your turn in line. So the gentleman said really loud so everyone in the line could hear him, Do you know who I am? And the travel agent lady, she was very smart. She grabbed her microphone and she said, At gate 17, there's a gentleman who does not know who he is. (laughs) If anyone can tell me his identity, please come and let the gentleman know. So the man went back to his place in line, disgruntled, and everyone in line laughed their heads off. So today we're going to talk about identity. Identity is something really important. It's important to know who you are, but even more important is to know who Jesus is. In Luke's gospel, we're going to come to a crossroads. He has been with his disciples for about three years. And this is kind of the dividing line where they start to march towards Jerusalem. They're going to, Jesus is going to give the first of three predictions of his upcoming passion, his death, his resurrection. And we're going to have this famous proclamation about Peter on Jesus' identity. So as we get ready to look into the scripture, I want to ask you a question. Can you really know for sure... ...that you are in Christ. Is it possible to know that you're truly saved... ...or is that just something you hope so? Can you really know beyond a shadow of a doubt... ...that if you were to die today... ...you would wake up in the next moment in eternity? Is that possible? So we're going to talk about that. In Luke 9, starting in verse 18... ...if you'll follow along with me... ...and in your listening God, ...there's a parallel passage in Matthew... ...which we will also cover... ...starting in verse 18 in Luke. "...and it happened as he was alone praying... That his disciples join him. Now before we read the next phrase, it's interesting the prayer ministry of Jesus. Before Jesus chose the twelve apostles, he spent a night in prayer. And before Jesus is getting ready to give them a huge pop quiz, a big test about his identity, he's praying again. So notice his disciples joined him, verse eighteen, and Jesus asked them, saying, Who do the crowds say that I am? So they answered and said John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and others say that you're one of the old prophets that's risen again. And Jesus said to them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said, The Christ of God. In Matthew's parallel account, Peter said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Let us pray. Father, This is perhaps one of the most important passages in the Bible because what we think and say and believe about Jesus affects not just our life now but our eternity. And, Lord, we we can't get it wrong about Jesus and get it right with God. If we were wrong about Jesus, we can't be right with God. So, Lord, I pray that the Heavenly Father, Father, I pray that you would reveal to us who Jesus is. So that we can have this same revelation that Peter had, that Jesus is indeed God with skin on, God in the flesh. So speak to our hearts now and give us a greater understanding. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Today I want to talk to you about seven life-given realities. Seven things about Jesus that are not as transformative now, but affect your eternity. The first one is this. Someone say, Jesus is. All right, 11 o'clock service is awake. That's good. Number one, Jesus is greater than popular opinion. Look at verse 18. And it happened as he was alone praying that his disciples joined him. And he asked them, saying, Who do the crowds say that I am? So if I were to do a survey where you live in Hendersonville, Mills River, Asheville, Candler, wherever you hail from, if I were to give a survey and give People in your neighborhood or cul-de-sac, 40 questionnaires, who is Jesus? How many different opinions do you think you'd get? You'd get a lot of different opinions, right? So Jesus is asking his apostles. They've been with him for about three years. And he's getting ready to go towards Jerusalem to die on the cross. So he wants to make sure that they know that they know who he really is. They have seen him raise the dead. They've seen him heal the sick. They've seen blind eyes open, crippled people start walking. So Jesus wants them to know that they know that he is the Messiah. If you look on your listening guide, the setting is Caesarea Philippi. A little info about that. It's located north of the Sea of Galilee. It's at the base of the southwest slope of Mount Hermon. And it's often associated with idol worship. There's a picture here. So it's a beautiful place. Mount Hermon for the anybody ever been to Mount Hermon? Or at least seeing it. It's about 9,000 feet tall. And at at a portion of the, the place where this is located, there's a rock. And this rock was dedicated to idol worship. So it's interesting. We'll see in Matthew's Parallel Gospel, Jesus talks about the rock. He's doing a play on words because Peter's name means rock. There was a rock here that was dedicated to idol worship. So this place, Caesarea Philippi, was a beautiful place. But it was known for idols. In fact, has anybody ever ate at Baskin-Robbins? They have the flavor of the month, right? Uh, This place was like the idol of the month. You pick and choose which idol you want. Uh, There was even a temple uh, dedicated to Caesar uh, by Herod because he thought Caesar Augustus was divine. There were about 14 different temples from from my research in this place. So it's interesting that Jesus would go to a pluralistic place where they worship many gods. And he was to ask them the big question. Who do you say that I am? What about me? So the thing about it is Jesus is greater than popular opinion. When he asks, who do the crowd say that I am? Did you know that you'll seldom get the right answer when it comes to God in the crowds? Being politically correct and biblically correct are often parallel opposites. So here's the thing, church. We can't change with the culture. Truth never changes. Truth is eternal as God is eternal. So we can't go along with what is politically correct. We have to go with what is biblically correct. So Arden First Baptist, we stand on the word of God. We believe it's living, it's infallible, it's accurate, and we can trust it. Amen. That'll make even a Baptist say amen sometime, right? So why cannot we trust popular opinion? Well, popular opinion, if you would go downtown Asheville to Malprop's bookstore or Barnes & Noble and have a a conversation over tea or coffee and ask them, what do you think about Jesus? The average person who's not a believer, they're going to tell you that Jesus is what? He's a good person, right? I look up to him, morality. The problem with popular opinion about Jesus, it's often wrong. Because they're placing Jesus as a good moral teacher on the same level like Gandhi, like Socrates, like the Dalai Lama. The problem with all this is Jesus claimed to be God. And some people will say, well, Jesus never said he was God in Scripture. Well, you obviously haven't read the Bible if you say that. If you look on your listening guide, let me give you a few verses about what others, his apostles said, and what Jesus himself said. John 1.1, 1, 1, the apostle John says, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. So John the apostle, who was the closest to Jesus, said Jesus is God. Out of Jesus' own lips, in John 8.58, Jesus said, most assuredly, I say it to you, before Abraham was, I am. you're like, well, what is that saying? Well, when Moses was being called out of the desert after 40 years in in the desert um, to lead the children of Israel out of slavery, he asked God, he said, well, when people ask your name, who do I say? Because there's so many gods out there. I need to know your name. And I love what God did. He didn't give the name that we would think. He said, I am. And Moses is sitting there pausing. I am You know, it's this awkward side. Well, God, you are who I am who I am. I will be who I will be. So here's what I want to paint this picture for you. When you know God is I am, he's saying that whatever you're going through, I am what you need me to be. When you are sick, remember that I am the great healer. When you don't know what to do, remember, I'm God. I'm all knowing. I'm omniscient. I always know what to do. When you are depressed, remember, I am your joy. When you don't know what to say, when you don't know what to do, when you're down and out, realize I have a resurrection power. I am who that I am. So no matter what you're going through, realize that God says, I am. And you fill in the blank because he is there. In John 10:30, Jesus said, my father and I are one at this. The Jews pick up stones to get ready to stone him. And Jesus, said, why are you stoning me for which good work? And they said, not for any good work, but you being a mere human, claim to be God. So even the Jews knew that Jesus claimed to be God, and Jesus did not deny it. In John 14, 6, a verse many of us know, Jesus said, I am the way. And By the way, in the Greek it's emphatic, I am the only way. I am the truth, and I am the life. No one gets to God except through me. In Romans 9, 5, a, a passage that many of us aren't as familiar with, uh, Paul is outlining the patriarchs and it says from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah and listen to this. the Messiah talking about Jesus who is God overall forever praise. So Paul said Jesus is God overall. If that wasn't enough, these are just a few scriptures Titus 2:13 it says looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. So here's the problem about popular opinion. How can Jesus Be a good man and also claim to be God. C.S. Lewis had it right when he said a good man would not claim to be God because he would be deceiving people. Really, with Jesus, you only have three options. And if you're taking notes, the first option is this. Jesus was a crazy man. You can go downtown Asheville and you'll find people that believe they're God. They're crazy. C-R-A-Z-Y. Crazy. They just lost it. The other possibility is not a crazy man, but Jesus was a con man. A con man, some of you have met con artists, uh, they're very charismatic, persuasive, and they get you to believe what they want you to believe so they can get something from you. So maybe, according to the lost public, Jesus was just a con man because he was trying to get a following. He he had a Messiah complex. He knew the Jews had hopes of a Messiah, so he was a con man. Or the third option, Jesus wasn't crazy. He wasn't a con, but he was the Christ man. He was who he said he was, and that's the one we as Christians believe because a crazy man wouldn't change lives. A con man wouldn't die on the cross. He would be like, I'm out of here, but the Christ man would because that's the mission he came for. Amen? Someone say Jesus is. Number two, Jesus is greater than the company of popular prophets. So the other option, what does the crowds think? Well, here's, here's what they say. Some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, some say one of the other prophets. And by the way, we studied a few weeks ago, Herod asked the same question Who is this Jesus? I beheaded John, but who can he be? So people everywhere of all times have asked, Who is Jesus? The problem with this, it may seem flattering because John the Baptist was the greatest prophet, Jesus said. You look at Elijah or Jeremiah, the Old Testament prophets, that's huge. But for Jesus, that's no compliment because guess what? He made those guys. Before any of them were born, back to John 858. Before Abraham was, I am. So all the Old Testament prophets and John the Baptist, Jesus made them. So that that was flattering to some people, but wouldn't be flattering to Jesus because that puts Jesus on a human level. Jesus was divine. He was the God man. There was no one greater than Jesus. There is no one stronger than Jesus. There's no one more loving, more caring, more compassionate, more powerful than Jesus. This is my God and my king. This is Jesus. So he's greater than the company of popular popular prophets. Number three, Jesus is greater than simply being a good man because Jesus was the anointed God man. Jesus asked the disciples, but who do you say that I am? And Peter, who was often the spokesman, and for those of you who like, have the gift of gab, and some of you extroverts like to talk, sometimes we stick our foots in our mouth, but sometimes we get it right. And this time Peter got it right. He said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. So here's the thing about it. Jesus is the Christ. Well, what is the Christ? In my research, I came across some reminders for you. Christ is the word Christos, and it means Messiah. All of the Jewish people in the Old Testament were looking forward to the Messiah. So here's what they were looking for, someone that had power to heal, someone that could do miracles, someone that could conquer their enemies, someone that was going to be the Savior. So when they saw Jesus, and they saw that he didn't deliver them from Roman occupation, and they got confused because they said... I thought the Messiah was going to deliver us from our enemies. I thought the lion was going to lay down the lamb. What's the deal? The Jewish people got it wrong in this. There was two comings of the Messiah. The first coming was was to die for the sins of the world. Which, by the way, it talks about this in the Old Testament. Psalm 22, Isaiah 53. They love the deliverance passages, but they didn't quite get the suffering servant passages. So there was two advents. The first advent, Jesus came to die in the, for the world. The second coming, he's going to come to defeat his enemies and usher into eternity. The new heaven, the new earth. So that's where the Jewish people were like, Jesus was great, but they're still enemies. They didn't get that there was two advents of the Messiah. So in the Old Testament, in my research, I was reminded there were three people that were anointed. You know, the Messiah means anointed one. Does anybody know? There were prophets, priests, and kings. So as a prophet, Jesus reveals the will of God for our salvation. As a priest, he offers not just a sacrifice, but he offers himself as a sacrifice. And he makes intercession for us. And as a king, he rules, he defends us, he restrains his people's enemies, and one day he's going to conquer those who refuse his rule. So the question I want to ask is, who is Jesus to you? The same question that Jesus asks his disciples, who do you say that I am? Who is Jesus to you? If he's simply a good man, you can maybe get some moral lessons that will help you to have morality in life. If he's simply a godly prophet, you can be in all of what he says. But who is he to you? I read a story about Benjamin Franklin, one of the founding fathers. And uh, he was a brilliant man, very witty, very smart. But he was friends with a not-so-good-looking pastor by the name of George Whitfield. That guy needs a hairdresser, doesn't he? Man. (laughs) So uh, George Whitfield was such a bold evangelist. He was one of these gospel preachers. You think of someone like Randy Shepard. He would just say, this is the word of God. You need to repent. So Benjamin Franklin didn't he thought Jesus was a great man, a good man, but he he wasn't ready to say Jesus was divine. So George Whitfield is praying for his conversion. He tells Franklin, I'm praying that you'll get saved. So George Whitfield goes to be with the Lord. And one of Franklin's friends, Ezra Stiles, he was the president of Yale University. He came to Ben Franklin. At this point, Ben Franklin had declined. He was on his deathbed. And I want to read to you what he asked him. He said, do you believe that Jesus is divine? And Ben Franklin said, I do not believe that Jesus is really divine, though I shall not take time now to investigate it, because soon I shall know for certain, referring to his upcoming death. Now, how tragic is that? I don't know, but I'm getting ready to die, and I'll meet him, and I'll find out. That's just so sad. Here's the thing. I wish I could go with Ben Franklin and say, Ben, you can't make the decision after you die. After you die, it's the judgment. As long as you have breath on this side of eternity, you have a chance to accept Christ. But after you die, there's no spiritual mulligan. For those of you golfers, you mulligan, you don't get a second chance after you die. So here's the thing. If Jesus is God to you, if he is the Messiah, if he's God with skin on, he didn't come just to inspire you or teach you he came to save you. He came to turn your death into life, your pain into purpose, your desperation into destiny. This is Jesus Christ, my King. That'd be a good time for an amen. So let Peter's confession become your declaration Jesus, you are the Christ. You are the Son of the living God. Someone say Jesus is greater. In case you haven't found out, this whole sermon's about Jesus. Uh, number four. Jesus is greater than sin and death. Why? Because Jesus defeated and conquered sin, hell, death, and the grave. Look at verse 21 and 22. Jesus strictly warned them not and commanded them not to tell this to anyone, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised on the third day. So Jesus was telling his disciples about the future passion. As I mentioned, there's three times that I know of in Luke where Jesus refers to his passion. And he was preparing his disciples. And here's the beautiful truth about Jesus. He came to your place so that one day he could take you to his place. Jesus was rejected by men so that you could be accepted by God. Jesus took your sin upon himself so that you could take his righteousness upon yourself. Jesus suffered so that one day when we get to heaven, there's no more suffering, no more pain. And Jesus was raised on which day? The third day. So that the first day you accept Christ, you have eternal life. That's your first day. Today could be the first day of the rest of your life. Amen. So my challenge to you to get in the spirit of George Whitfield. if you've never accepted Christ, I encourage you to believe the gospel, repent of your sins, and you will have eternal life. Amen. All right, you guys want some bonus material? Amen. Bible, The Bible students are like, give me some more. All right, that's like telling a bulldog, sick him, give me some more. All right, number five, in order for you to accept Jesus as Christ, you must receive a divine revelation from God the Father. This is from Matthew, the parallel passage. Matthew sixteen seventeen. Jesus answered Peter after he gives this confession of faith. He says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but who? My Father who is in heaven. Ladies and gentlemen, I can remember when I was five years old. I didn't know a lot of great theology. I, I couldn't even quote a lot of scripture, maybe John three sixteen at the most. But I asked my father, my my, my dad, he's, by the way, he's teaching Sunday school downstairs. Uh, we have our first ever 11 o'clock Sunday school class, which is cool. But I asked him, I said, Dad... Um, what does it take to get to heaven? If I say, then now I lay me down to sleep, prayer will that get me to heaven? So my dad presented the gospel and said, You've got to believe in Jesus, ask him to forgive your sins. So at five, I knelt down in my parents' room. They still live in the same house, so it's got a lot of good memories. I knelt down, and I nailed down my salvation. I asked Jesus in my heart, I asked him to forgive me of my sins, and that day forever changed my life. Not just the trajectory of this life, but the trajectory of eternity. So have you ever made that decision? Have you ever knelt down? You know, a lot of people, I've heard people say, well, I've always been a Christian. And that always raised a red flag for a pastor or, you know, a Christian. It's like, well, are you married? Well, yeah. Have you always been married? Well, no. <laughs> you know, it's like to be a Christian, you have to make a decision. You're not just born a Christian because your family is. God doesn't do things by proxy when it comes to salvation. There's no grandchildren in the kingdom of heaven, just children. So you have to make the decision, just like for those of you who are married, you say, I do, and you may kiss the bride, you're married. When you become a Christian, Jesus already said I do to you when he died on the cross, but you have to say, I do as well to become part of the bride of Christ. So there has to be a decision. As I used to say as a youth pastor uh, when I had student ministry, just because you're born in McDonald's doesn't make you a happy meal. Just because you go to church doesn't make you a Christian. You need to accept Christ. But before we get all excited about, you know, we're Christian, we've got to be excited about it. But realize it wasn't because you're extra special. It wasn't because you're better than anyone else. It was because the Heavenly Father gave you divine revelation. Because here's the truth about anyone that comes to Christ. You can only come to Christ if God draws you in. You can't get saved until you first realize you're lost. You ever notice that? You can't get someone saved until they, they get lost first. They realize they're lost. Uh, John six forty four. this is in your listening guide. Jesus himself said, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws them to me. And at the last day, I will raise them up. So Jesus said, listen, if you want to have a relationship, if you want to get saved, the only way you can do it is the father draws. We're like, well, who does the father draw? I believe John three sixteen. Jesus died for the world. So the whole world has a chance. And the Holy Spirit has given everyone at least one chance. Uh, when it comes to salvation, I don't believe there's just a group that, get, that had the opportunity. I believe the whole world has an opportunity. Because why would Jesus die for the whole world and not give the whole world a chance? Would that be loving? I don't think so. In Romans 3.10, it says, There is no one righteous, not one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks after God. Wow. Well, if I'm not seeking after God, it's going to take God seeking after me. So Lori's Lori's uh, down at the Sunday school class. I'll give a story about her. You know, some of you know a little bit of her story, but Lori did not want to date me. I pursued her. She rejected me. I mean, how, how could you reject me? I don't. I still don't know. So for five months, I chased that girl down. I, I ladies, you'll, you'll you'll think this is crazy and maybe stalkerish, but women influence other women. So guess what I did? I became best friends with all her girlfriends. So I'm like, that's how to influence her. And it worked. It worked. So her girlfriends would be we'd plan an event. It's like, by the way, can you invite Lori? And they knew what I was doing, but they helped me out. But here's the thing. There's a parallel with God. You didn't pursue him initially. He went after you as the lover of heaven. Or if you were a bay some people use the analogy, the hound of heaven. He came chasing you down. And eventually, when you got tired of running, the Holy Spirit kept drawing you. Then you made the decision, you know what? God's going to keep pursuing me. I'm just going to surrender to his love. And then there's a great relationship after that. So it brings the question, well, if Jesus wants all people to receive him, why aren't, why are so few people doing it? I'm glad you're asking that question. You know, since this is a sermon, I'm going to give you something alliterated, three Ps, so you might want to write it down. How do we reach more people for Christ? The first P is this, proclaim Christ. We, we know from scripture that faith comes by hearing and hearing by what? The word of God. You know, it's it's been said that you're to preach Christ wherever you go, using words only when necessary. And I think that's a nice saying, But listen, your life's not perfect. You got to use words. Even Jesus himself was perfect, but he still used words. So I would say that statement sounds good. You need to live the life, but you also need to use words. The reason why is that the Bible is the only thing that's inspired. Your life's not. So if you're just looking at my life, You may not get saved from that witness alone. You need the revelation of God through his word. Amen. So proclaim Christ. The second thing is present the gospel. They got to be presented with a chance to either accept Christ or reject him. Back to Romans 10 verse nine. It says that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, what we're talking about here, and you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So the gospel is this. Jesus is God. God. He died on the cross, he was buried on the third day, he rose again. And if I'm willing to receive it and turn from my sin, I will be saved. And you can know it. I mentioned at the beginning, can you really know that you're saved? The Bible's answer is absolutely yes. It says in the book of 1 John, I write these things to you who believe that Jesus is the Christ, that believing that you may have life, that you may know And here's the thing, we can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you're saved. So that tension that you had at the beginning, can I really know? Let's release it by, if you've accepted Jesus truly, you truly have life present tense. It's not just a hope, when I get to heaven, I hope I'll make it. Here's the truth about eternal life that maybe you haven't heard or heard in a while. Eternal life begins the moment you get saved. A lot of people think it begins when you get to heaven. That's a culmination of eternal life. But in the book of John, it says, whoever has the Son has life it's present tense reality that's good news look at the person next news that's good news so present the gospel so we proclaim christ we present the gospel and number three the third p is practice what you proclaim you don't want there to be a discontinuity between what you say and how you live if people hear you say the gospel, but they don't see you live the gospel, it produces a discontinuity in that person's mind. They're like, they say this, but they're living this. And then it, it adds to the long list. I would go to church, but the church is full of hypocrites. That's why they see it. What they're saying is there's a discontinuity. What I tell them, I don't argue with them. I say, you're absolutely right. And there's always room for one more. <laughs> I don't argue with them. Because here's the thing. None of us are perfect. We've talked in, in, in weeks past that there's the hypocrite gap. Hypocrite gap is what you know and what you do. Whatever gap there is, that's how big of a hypocrite one is. Now, the goal is to narrow that gap. That's what the Bible calls sanctification. But none of us are perfect. So if you're looking for a perfect church, I'm sorry, we're not it. And as soon as you find that place, it won't be perfect as soon as you join. Ouch. <laughs> but it's the truth. All right, number six. The church is built upon the foundation that Jesus is indeed the Christ, the Son of God. Now, for the Bible students out here, you love the play of words in Matthew. You know, Jesus is standing perhaps by this rock where there's idol worship, and he's standing with Peter, whose name is Rock, Petros, or Petra. I'm not sure which Greek word, but he's a rock. And there, there's a play on words. And Peter's name basically means little rock. And then he's standing next to a big rock. And by the way, the analogy of God in the Old Testament is the rock. So you're like, what is he referring to? Is he referring to Peter? Is he referring to Peter's confession? Is he referring to Christ? I think there may be a blend of all the above. Because if you read scripture, and I'm going to give you some references, 1 Corinthians 3.11, it says that the church is built upon Christ as the foundation. So he's the ultimate rock. But guess what? Peter's little rock is built upon Christ. And your little rock is built upon Christ as well. And Peter's confession that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, That's the confession that Christians have is salvation. So the church is built upon that. So which is it? Is it Jesus, Peter, his confession? I think it's a blend of all three. Jesus being the foundation. He's the chief cornerstone. And every time someone confesses and believes in their mouth, Jesus, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. I give my life to you. Guess what? There's another rock and another rock and another rock and another rock. And every time you share Christ with someone and they have that confession, Jesus is the Christ, I give my life to him. Guess what? You're building the church. Isn't that good news? So, I think when we look at it, why are 80% or so churches plateaued or declining? Has the church lost its power? I mean, the churches, we have more education than ever before. We have some of the best music, best programs than ever before. Why are we declining? Why are churches across the board declining? I think it goes back to this. We want to have great programs, and great programs are wonderful, but great programs do not change the world. We want to have the best music programs, and we have a wonderful one hear Arden, but great music alone does not change the world. We want inspiring teachers and messages, but inspiring and teachings and messages alone do not change the world. Folks, the only thing that changes the world is Jesus Christ and his foundation. The reason why the church loses our power is, you know, we we get focused on all the trappings, which they're all good in their place. And if we don't keep Christ central, we lose the focus, we lose the power, and the church cannot be built any higher. Because Christ is the chief cornerstone. He is the center of it all. And if we lose center, guess what? We lose focus and we lose power. So let us have the greatest programs and the greatest music and the greatest Sunday school class and the greatest. But let us never forget. Jesus Himself said, "If I am lifted up, I'll do what? I'll draw all men to me." We forget that it's so simple. We need to focus on Jesus Christ, and the church is built upon Him. Amen. Number ten or number seven. I don't have ten points. Number seven. You're like, thank God He doesn't have seven points. (laughs) Number seven. The church has this promise. Who will build his church? Jesus will build his church and death and hell cannot overcome it. (laughs) That is such good news. Look at verse 18. And I say to you that you're Peter, your little rock. And on this rock, I believe he's talking about himself. I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give to you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Many of you have uh, heard of the Emperor Charlemagne. And it's interesting, in the year 1000 AD, and this is some 186 years after he died, um, one of the other emperors that followed opened up his tomb. And there was Charlemagne in his tomb. There was gold and jewels, I and mean, you can just imagine all the beauty. And on his throne there sent the Emperor Charlemagne, he was sitting, he still had the crown on his head. For those of you who grew up in the 80s, he had like the Mr. T. starter kid, I imagine, all the gold bling. Um, he had all this, but what, what's fascinating is his hand was extended out to a book in his lap. Come to find out, he was reading the Bible, and his bony little skeletal finger was pointing to this verse, Mark 8:36. For what does it profit for a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul. I wonder what answer Charlemagne gave. I wonder what answer you will give. Because folks, the truth is we're all going to have to stand before God. And there's no spiritual mulligans. You don't get a second chance. In this lifetime, we have the chance to accept Christ. We have the same chance that Peter said. When Jesus said, who do you say that I am? We say, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And it's not just the intellectual assent. It's a heart belief that I'm willing to turn my life. To God and believe because even the demons believe and they tremble but they're not saved it's believing and receiving what Jesus did for you so here's the thing God gives us some beautiful promises if you're taking notes I just don't want to miss these points Jesus said I will build my church did you know the one thing that Jesus gave his life for obviously for God's glory but what is the one action Jesus did throughout his whole life he was about building the church. When he was 12 years old, and his mother's like, Where have you been? We've been so worried about you. He said, Didn't you know it must be about my father's business? That was at 12. And here, six months before his death, he said, I will build my church. Did you know that Jesus wants this church to grow more than you do or I do? He does. And as long as we keep him the centerpiece, it will grow. Folks, I want to get to the end of my life, however long that is. We're not promised tomorrow. It could be today. It could be 20 years. I could be in my 90s. When I'm on my deathbed, I want to be able to look at my wife and family, and I want to be able to say I gave my life for the one thing Jesus gave his life for, building the church. And it's wonderful. We've got a lot of business owners. It's great to build businesses, and I praise God for that. It's great to build families. It's great to build friendships. It's great to build a lot of things. But remember, the church is that which is eternal. You can't take stuff with you. You can't take uh, multiple houses and homes. Those are blessings, but you can't take it with you. The only thing that you can take with you is what kind of block, what kind of rock did you put? How many people did you add to the church, the living stones? Jesus said, I will build my church. So let us give ourselves for that which Jesus gave himself for. Amen. Building the church. And the second promise, the gates of Hades shall not prevail. And most of the time, this is where pastors go off like, we're going to overcome Satan and beat him. And that's true. I think in the context, Jesus is referring to his own death. Because remember, he just predicted I'm going to die. And he's basically saying, I believe, listen, even though I die, Satan's not going to overcome. He's not going to prevail. And the same is true for you by application. When you die, that's not the end of it. Hades referring to the gates of death. Death is not the end of us. Because as soon as we pass over on the other side, we begin to live like never before. Amen. I always joke with you guys, it's not your best life now, it's your best life later. Because we have eternity waiting for us. And number three, Jesus gave the keys of the kingdom to the church. And you're like, what is the keys of the kingdom? Does that mean you can name it, claim it, say it, spray it, will it, deal it? I mean, what is that? Well, the keys of the kingdom basically means this. Whatever God declares in heaven... He's going to speak to us on earth. And if we're in touch with him, we're going to be able to unlock eternal doors. So contextually, this happened to Peter. Does anybody remember Acts 2 when Peter preached that great sermon? And all the people in the day of Pentecost gave their life to Christ. All these people that came scattered throughout. You saw 3,000 people get saved. So we saw the Jews entering in. And then in Acts chapter 10, there was Cornelius, you know, the centurion. And God spoke to him, I want you to go speak to Cornelius. So he, it's already unlocked in heaven. I need you to unlock it on earth. So Peter goes and he preaches to Cornelius and his household and they all get saved. He unlocked the door of the Gentiles. So here's a question I want to give to you. You're part of the church. And God has given us the keys of eternity. And he's already declared in heaven that he desires, this is Second uh, Peter 3, 9, I believe. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He desires for people to get saved. So he's given a key to you called the gospel proclamation. Are you going to unlock the door people in your life? Are you going to share it? Because Jesus said, whatever you open will be open down here. But whatever you close will be closed down here. Listen, folks, that's a heavy responsibility to have the keys of the kingdom. Let us use it wisely. Amen. So in conclusion, I was reading this by J.D. Greer. He's a pastor in North Carolina, great man of God. He composed this list of Jesus through the Bible. And I want to read it to you because I think this is so powerful. Because if you haven't got the main idea, it's all about Jesus. He's the centrality, the foundation, the cornerstone of everything. But have you ever thought about Jesus in all the Bible? In Genesis, I was the word of God creating the heavens and the earth. In Exodus, I was the Passover lamb whose blood was sprinkled on the doorposts of your hearts so that you could escape the bonds of slavery. In Leviticus, I was the temple, the place where you met with God. In Numbers, I was your ever-present guide, your pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. In Deuteronomy, I was the prophet who was coming, who was greater than Moses. In Joshua, I was the conquering warrior leading you to the promised land. In Judges, I was the broken savior rising to rescue you. In Ruth, I was your kinsman redeemer. In First and Second Samuel, I was the pure-hearted shepherd king. Who rushed out to face your giants all alone. In 1st and 2nd Kings, I was the righteous ruler. In 1st and 2nd Chronicles, I was the restorer of the kingdom. In Ezra, I was the faithful scribe. In Nehemiah, I was the rebuilder of walls. In Esther, I was your advocate, risking my life to restore you to royalty. In Job, I was your living redeemer. In the Psalms, I was the one who hears your cries. In Proverbs, I am wisdom personified. In Ecclesiastes, I am the meaning that lets you escape the madness of the world. In the Song of Solomon, I am your lover and your bride's groom. In Isaiah, I was the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, wounded for your transgressions and bruised for your iniquities. In Jeremiah, I am the spirit that writes God's law on your heart. In Lamentations, I was the weeping prophet. In Ezekiel, I was the river of life bringing healing to the nations. In Daniel, I'm the fourth man in the fire. In Hosea, I was the ever faithful husband pursuing my unfaithful bride. In Joel, I was the restorer of all that which the locusts have eaten away. In Amos, I was your burden bearer. In Obadiah, the judge of the earth. In Jonah, the prophet cast out into the storm so that you could be brought in. In Micah, the everlasting ruler, born to us in Bethlehem. In Nahum, the avenger of God's elect. In Habakkuk, your reason of rejoicing, even when her fields are empty. In Zephaniah, I am the great reformer. In Haggai, the cleansing fountain. In Zechariah, I was the pure son, whom every eye on earth shall one day behold. And in Malachi, I am the son of righteousness, rising with healing in my wings." But the Bible doesn't stop there. In the New Testament, Jesus in Matthew, he's the king of the Jews. In Mark, he's the son of God. In Luke, he's the savior born into us this day in the city of Bethlehem, which is Christ the Lord. In John he's the word become flesh dwelling among us. In Acts he's Christ the risen Lord proclaiming salvation to the nations. In Romans he's the justifier. In 1st and 2nd Corinthians the spirit at work in the churches. In Galatians he is our righteousness imputed by faith. In Ephesians our righteous armor. In Philippians the God who meets our every need. In Colossians he's the firstborn of all creation. In first and second Thessalonians, he's descending from heaven with a shout. Let's hear you guys shout. Woo Make even a first Baptist want to shout, coming to meet us together in the clouds. In first and second Timothy, he's the one mediator between God and man. In Titus, he's our faithful pastor. In Philemon, he's a redeemer, restoring us to service. In Hebrews, he's our great high priest. In James, he's a life at work in our faith. In first and second Peter, he's our living cornerstone. In 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, he is our advocate, pleading his righteousness in our place. In Jude, he's God, our Savior, the one who keeps us stumbling and presents us blameless in his presence with great joy. And in Revelation, he is the Alpha and Omega. He's the beginning and the end. He's the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Church, It's always been about Jesus, and it forever will be about him. Amen. So today, we talked about how Jesus is greater than popular opinion. He's greater than the company of popular prophets. He's greater than simply being a good man because he's the anointed God man. He's greater than sin and death because he conquered sin, hell, death, and the grave. In order for you to accept Jesus as Christ, you must receive a divine revelation from God the Father. The church is built upon the foundation that Jesus is indeed the Christ, the Son of God. And the church has this promise. Jesus will build his church and death and hell cannot overcome it. So we've talked about a lot in 66 books of the Bible in one sermon. So to simplify it, the sermon in a sentence is this. Jesus Christ is the hope of the world, so let everybody know about it. Jesus Christ is the hope of the world, so let everybody know about it. Let's pray. Father, I am out of breath, but not out of hope. I thank you that it's all always been about Jesus. Father, we repent for where we've been one degree to 10 degrees or however many degrees off where Jesus is not the center of it all. Forgive us for that. And Jesus, help us to keep our eyes fixed and focused on you. Right now, as the believers pray silently in your seats, Would there be anyone here that you've never had a revelation that Jesus is God, that he died on the cross, that he rose, and that he wants to give you forgiveness? If that's you, you've never accepted Christ, raise your hand. I'm going to pray a prayer with you. This could be the first day of the rest of your life, just like when I was five. You can say that prayer. If that's you, no one looking around to say, Jesus, I believe that you're God, that you're the Messiah. I believe that you died on the cross, you were buried, and you rose again. And Jesus, I'm willing to give my life to you. Forgive me of all my sins. Step out of heaven and into my life, into my heart. I make you my Lord, my Savior, my King, my friend. Please forgive me of all my sins, Jesus. And for the believers praying, if you're like me and say, I want to end my life saying I built the church. You may have done a lot of successful things and we praise God for that. We don't minimize that, but we want to maximize Your life's all about building the church, investing in that which is eternal. And if you're like me, you haven't always done it perfectly, but you want to get better at that, say this prayer. Jesus, I want to be about building your church. I want to be about investing my life in eternity, the word of God and people. Forgive me where I've fallen short of this and help me to do better. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's children said, amen.